This is Association Tech Talk with Dr. John Alexson and Matt Harpold. Well, welcome to Association Tech Talk. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you, John? I'm doing great. I think it's time to introduce our guests for the day. I'll let you do it, Matt. Absolutely, John. I am very excited to introduce Dr. Michael Tatanetti, founder of Pricing for Associations. Dr. Michael is an expert on product pricing strategies for associations. We're going to dive into his recommendations and guidelines for identifying how to properly price learning products for association members. So Dr. Michael, do you mind sharing a bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Matt and John, thanks for having me on today. Um, so I'm, uh, yeah, I'm Dr. Michael. I, uh, I'm the founder of Pricing for Associations. And what we do is all things pricing for the association space. Uh, so whether it's events, uh, online education, certifications, membership, sponsorship, uh, we focus on what is the value that you deliver, how can you increase the value, charge appropriately, and then communicate it. Uh, so uh, what makes us experts, I'm, uh, one unique value proposition for me is I'm the only person in the world to hold both the certified association executive designation as well as the certified pricing professional designation. And so what we bring is um, a unique background and experience, having been an association executive, a vice president, uh, as well as now consulting and speaking on all things pricing and value. Um, so, so you, we, Michael, we, so you, um, you eat and sleep associations. Yeah, associations specifically. And really, I would say making sure that they're getting an ROI on what they're doing with members, with attendees, with their sponsors. Absolutely. I think that's a great background. You know, being an executive in an association, you have experience now on both sides of the fence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not foreign to me what we actually go through, what it's like <laughs> to work with a board and get approvals and all that good stuff. So it definitely helps. If, if you don't mind me asking, what, what, what got your start working with associations and really focusing on that area? Yeah. So before I worked in the association space, uh, I worked in education. So I was in higher ed, then in K-12. Um, and then I, I kind of naturally moved to associations. Uh, to me, it's a great you know, opportunity to continue in the educational space. But I really enjoyed working with adults and just that unique aspect of associations. And then from there, um, as I developed my pricing acumen and earned my certification and honed in on those skills, most people focus on pricing for corporate, you know, for for-profits. It wasn't a conversation that I saw in the association space, and it was one that was desperately needed. So I think we have light conversations. It's not that it's lacking, but deep conversations and systematic conversations, I found a, a, a unique opportunity there to assist and help. Uh, so that's really kind of how, how we came to be. Why do you think associations struggle with the decision on how to price their products? Yeah, I think for uh, two reasons. One, there's not necessarily a formula that's out there that you can just rinse and repeat. Um, so what typically happens is associations are pulling it out of their back pocket, more looking at competitors and just pricing based on competitors without knowing what their competitors' real value is, what their costs are, any of that. The other issue that I think that a lot of associations face is because we're nonprofits and we have a mission to serve people 
we want to give everything away or for as cheap as possible. So we, we think it's bad to profit, but I think it's good. I think COVID has taught us that we need to have financial reserves that are healthy so that we aren't laying people off and stopping services. Um, so I think now is actually a really good time to say, hey, pricing is a good thing. If it's done right and done with the right intention, it's actually for financial sustainability of your organization. Right. I, I struggle with that today. I want to give everything away. <laughs> they they keep me away from the pricing discussion. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not a bad thing though. That's good to know about yourself. <laughs> yeah. So give us a give us a story about you know a specific association that you um, that you helped as, in regards to pricing. Yeah. So um, one in particular that that I enjoy. It's a good story. Is there's one organization where they were constantly seeing, so this actually starts with value, not just with pricing. Um, so from a value perspective, when they would survey their, their members, their attendees, they would consistently see one big issue, which was that uh, another department that complements them was not executing what they were bringing to the table. So there was typically across all organizations for the members um, an issue there. And the association would typically look at it and say, okay, well, we don't serve that department. So that's, that's not our mission. So it sucks. We empathize. What else can we do though? Um, when we sat down and talked about it, we, we, we realized there's a opportunity there. They're bringing it to you because they think that you might be able to help. And so we started with the value. We figured out what is it that we can do? What's realistic? Uh, we determined that we could do an online training for that department it was still missional in the sense that we were training the other department on the function of that association. Um, so while it may not be the normal constituent that would become a member or show up at a conference, there was still a training need. And so we created the training. We, we of course, did the research, talked to the people who were actually in that department, because what the normal members would want would be, you know, something really long and in-depth and solve all their problems. But that doesn't mean the other department wants to actually show up to the training, approve the budgets for the training, et cetera. So we had to get realistic, meet in the middle, figure out what is the learning outcome? What is the change in behavior that's needed? And how do we get them there as quickly as possible? So we determined that, um, created a valuable product and online training. And then from there, we priced it accordingly um, and sold it. And that brought in, I mean, just in the first year, it brought in about a quarter million in revenue um, with very low uh, uh, costs, so very high profit margins. And the organization didn't expect for it to do that well. But what they found was once it was launched, uh, a lot of organizations, the leaders of those organizations were willing to champion and say, hey, we need to sign up the entire department for this. Here's why. Here's the outcome. Here's the ROI. Um, so that was a really fun project post project to really see it come to life and see what it did for their bottom line. And this organization did about uh, three to five million per year. So a quarter million in sales in, in the first year was a, a nice, healthy addition to their bottom line. Um, so yeah, that, that one is probably one of my favorite stories. So tell us a little bit about some of the pricing, you know, some of the what were some of the challenges of determining how to price that educational product? Yeah, um, so it, it, it always varies a bit if it's something that's brand new versus something that is there like membership and you're just upgrading it. 
when you're upgrading something, it's a little bit easier to, to figure out how do we adjust the price accordingly because people are already used to a certain product. But when it's something that's brand new, that definitely has some separate and unique challenges. So one thing that we did was we, uh, we actually used price anchoring where we said, okay, the normal certification for the department that we serve is X for this many hours of training um, and content and support. And we then figured out in comparison, what is the ratio or what percentage of time are they spending on this new program for the adjacent department that we're serving? And so we use that to figure, okay, this is about one fifth of the amount of training that we would provide. So we figured let's maybe go with about one fifth of the pricing. Um, we actually increased it a bit from just one fifth from a 20% uh, you know, comparison, because we still did some market research and determined willingness to pay and what the ROI would be. Um, but that was a kind of a, a cheat sheet, if you will, of how to get a good ballpark idea of where we might land. We didn't want to underprice uh, based on comparison of what they were getting. So for us, um, we had some pros in that we already had stakeholders who were champions and willing to pitch this and give us feedback within the organizations. That was definitely a leg up, but we still had to make it make sense because the decision makers to pay for the program for an entire department would be new people to us. And so we had to price it and communicate the value in a way that made sense. Otherwise they would think we don't need this. Why are we even doing it? So how early do you engage in the marketing aspects? while determining the product pricing. Yeah, that's good. Um, so normally we we look at market research is one of the earliest things that we do. Um, typically I start with some internal data analysis. So as much data as we have that we can look at, um, I want to look at that before I do market research so I can look at segments and see what story we can confirm based on historical data. And then from there, um, we want to dive into the market research. And a part of that is clearly documenting the feedback that people give so that we can repurpose that for marketing collateral. So the marketing is definitely early in the conversation. Um, and then from there, testing it, you know, when we round out the end of the project and we're doing market testing of the price, part of what we're testing also is the value propositions, basically what might we include on collateral or on a sales page on a website. This way we can make sure that what we're saying, really what you're testing is, if we tell you that this is what the product is and the ROI is, would you pay, like, what would you sign up for this or that? Because if, if they don't see the value in signing up for it, that means you're not marketing it well. Mm -hmm. So the marketing and the pricing really go hand in hand, communicating the value. Uh, it all goes really hand in hand. So all of that, I would say marketing value and pricing is all etched into how we do projects throughout the entirety of the project and therefore the deliverables of what we make sure that our clients are set up for with success. Um, the other thing I would add to that though, is another question I often get is, uh, when should we engage with pricing? And for me, the answer to that is when you have the concept, it's better to determine the pricing before you fully build it out while you're still in the ideation stage and you're still doing some market research. Uh, to even prove the concept of what it is that you're doing, it's better to do it then than after the fact. Because what you might do is create a product that you've put a lot into and the willingness to pay is not there and now you're losing money. So it's best to talk about pricing 
from the jump as early as possible. Um, and therefore that really does tie in with value. What, what's the value of the product that you're creating and how do you market it? How do you position it? So when it comes to, when you use the word testing, um, how elaborate on that? Are you testing different pricing schemes? Yeah, typically we're testing variations. Uh, we usually at that point have an idea of this is the this is the product and this is the price. Uh, what we're typically doing is throwing in some uh, red herrings, if you will, and seeing what people pick so that we can get an idea. So uh, I typically use something called conjoint analysis where we're going to have slight variations and slightly adjust the price and see what, what do people gravitate towards overall. Um, also having conversations about why did they pick what they picked? So what's the psychology behind it? What's their thought process? Um, if they had confusion, if they say, well, you know, A seemed better than B because of ABC, documenting that because again, that impacts your marketing. Maybe we didn't communicate something clearly enough. Maybe they don't understand the value of what's in B compared to A. Um, so yeah, so that market testing for me is an important final step. I have some clients who skip it. So some will do you know, the data and uh, analysis and the market research and then say, okay, here's where we're landing and go with it. But I recommend doing some market testing before you go with it, just to make sure that there's no nuances that were missed, or you're leaving a little bit on the table that maybe you could capitalize on. So Dr. Mike, uh, you're using some big words. Now, did yeah. you go to, <laughs> did you go to school for this? Where did you pick up all this information on uh, how to price? Yeah. So, so this for me was uh, by earning that certified pricing professional designation. Um, so that, that was all a part of the training. So again, I think that's what makes our firm a bit unique is we're really um, versed in pricing. So you don't have to be, we'll come in and be the nerds and crunch the data and help guide you on the right path. <laughs> so that, that certification, where's that through? Uh, it's through professional pricing society. Oh, yes, that's right. There's an association for everything, isn't there? Yep. Yeah, there Always. is. Always. Always, <laughs> yeah. Cool. When we, when we look at kind of that initial discussion you have with clients when you're working, kind of identifying the pricing paths that they can go down, what is the most common mistake you see associations make, I guess, before that discussion happens? Yeah, before, um, before the discussion happens, I think that typically that they're shooting for a number based on their gut feeling. And, but it's not based in any data um, or, or any analysis. So typically they'll say, hey, we've got this. We think it is the most amazing thing ever, right? Like, and they believe in it, otherwise they wouldn't be making it. But that doesn't mean that you're solving a problem that other people want to pay for. So just because it fits your mission, just because it might solve an issue, is it at scale enough? Does it make sense? And is that what your members need right now? Um, I think the easiest example of that would be during the pandemic. You might know that your members need help with something in particular and make a product and that can be great, but chances are what your members have needed for the last year is drastically different than what they needed the year prior. So being very in touch with what do they need right now? How do we best serve them? And creating products around that, not just this seems like a great thing, but what are they willing to pay for and what problem are you genuinely solving? Um, to me, that's kind of the biggest mistake. They, they they come up with it without talking to enough people and they price it just based on how amazing they think it is. And I love the confidence, but if you launch it and it doesn't sell and then your board is like what happened 
and you're not hitting your financial benchmarks that you promised that you would from it, uh, then you have a problem on your hands, which is why you need to ensure that your pricing and your value are correct. So speaking of people, who exactly are you working with at the association level? Um, so I don't share all my clients. I have some of them listed on the website just for confidentiality. One of right. the interesting things is that most people don't want to say that they're good at pricing because uh, their members, you know, could look at that in a certain way. Right. Um, well, what so, about the what about the position? You don't have to name names. Oh like, yeah yeah yeah. What, what are the positions that you typically are working with? Yeah, it, it, that varies quite a bit um, depending on the size of the org. Um, so I, I, it can be literally the CSE or ED or CEO. Um, sometimes marketing is included in there, sometimes not. Um, it really depends what are we pricing? Is it something educational? Is it membership? Is it an event? Um, so it might be meeting planners. It might be education. It might be marketing. It might be membership. It might be a sponsorship person or a salesperson. So it genuinely depends on what we're pricing. Um, it can, it can strongly vary, but typically within the organization, they've aligned someone to be the leader, to make the decisions. And then usually any stakeholders from there that, that might be executing it or have good insight, knowledge um, into what it is, that's usually who I want to work with. So sure. one of the first so, steps is who's on the task force? What are we doing? Yeah. So let's dig into the weeds here a little bit and talk about the, you mentioned the pandemic Mm -hmm. um, conferences were headed to be, had to be canceled, the face-to-face -face conferences. Mm -hmm. So everything was kind of up in the air. Uh, everybody needed to move to a virtual conference. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what people were thinking about in terms of that pricing dilemma of the virtual conference. Yeah, that was a huge one. Um, uh, really people were figuring out, do we offer this for free? because our people are in a pandemic as well as our organization. So we just wanna serve and get information that they need right away. So do we give this away for free? But then on the flip side, what do we do as far as money coming in and being able to pay our staff? Um, most associations are set up that the vast majority of their revenue comes from events between registration, sponsorship, like everything attached to the event itself. So with that, how do we, how do, we do this? I think that a lot of people drastically discounted. They either did it for free um, or they did a really low rate, like less than 50% of what they would normally charge for an in-person event. And I think in general, that was a mistake because most people delivered the same value or really close to it uh, that they would at an in-person. And I think another mistake that really came out of all of this is organizations that have levels, like so if there's national and then state or local chapters, um, I don't think that the national organizations thought through the ramifications of what they did for, for their constituents and their components. And what I mean by that is some of the national organizations said, okay, we have enough in reserves, we can ride this out and offer this for free. But then what that did was the state organizations had a hard time selling a conference when the national was giving stuff away for free. So that really hurt the states who probably did not have, typically from my experience, did not have the same level of reserves. Um, not just you know number for number, but percentage of operating costs. And so that really hurt smaller associations that were state or local. Um, but yeah, pretty much everybody wanted to move to a free model. So what, what have you found that associations have learned and are doing now? 
Yeah, I think that what they've learned is that they can't give everything away for free. And so even though that feels good, it's not practical and it's not wise. Um, so what they're doing now is figuring out how do we charge for the event? Do we charge what we charge you know, for in person? Do we charge a percentage of it? And also one of the big obstacles most associations are facing is how do we communicate that so that our members, you know, they're gonna have the question of, wait, this was free last year. Why are we paying for it now? So communicating the journey. And we did this in the moment because we didn't know what was going on and we wanted to serve you. But in order to stay open, we have to have revenue coming in as well. So we're going to charge for this. Here's the value that you're going to get. And this is a part of being a member of the organization. So I think if you take it from the community aspect, then it works. But I think that's the biggest obstacle right now is picking a price and then communicating effectively a price increase. Have you had any experience with associations that are thinking about doing a hybrid where they have an event live somewhere, but they also hold a virtual event? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that I think can work. Again, we'll see what happens. I've only really seen smaller like state and local associations pull that off right now because typically their members don't have to fly and travel as far. They can drive somewhere. So it's easier to get bodies to the in-person component versus a national or international organization. But yes, that has been the case. That's been conversations around what do we price? How much do we charge for the virtual component versus the in-person? And do we give them all the same things? Um, and that varies per organization. Uh, in general, I say have some things that are special just for the virtual audience. Um, and then also try to keep the value pretty similar and try to keep that virtual ticket at a similar enough cost. Personally, I'd love it to be at like 80% of the in-person, not less than 50 to 60% of the in-person. That's generalized, but it, for the sake of a general statement, that's what I would give. Yeah, uh, one of the things that we saw was the increase in volume. In other words, individuals that may be at the director level, staff who couldn't travel to a live conference now attended the virtual conference. Are you seeing maybe the potential for maybe a split rate somehow? There could be, yeah. For If there were a hybrid component and you were sending certain people, I think that could be. I would treat that the same as any other volume-based um, strategy. You would just have to figure what's the percent off and then maybe offer that across both the virtual, like a combination of whether you have, let's say it's five people attend, you get one free, then figure out. And of course it would have to be the lesser of the two. So the, one of the virtual people would be for free, not the in-person. But yeah, I think you could absolutely do that and encourage that. Um, I don't think though that we're going to see too many hybrid events. I, I, think, I think we will see more of that next year in 22, um, maybe this fall, but I don't think that we're gonna see enough of it right away. And then when I think the world does open back up, um, I think most people are going to move back to in-person. So I think the opportunity for hybrid is more what you said, John, which is the people that normally wouldn't come, but might want the training now that they've been exposed to it. So I think it'll be more of that, more of an, on, not on demand, it could be live, but I, I just think, think of it as if you had an in-person that you recorded and then you offered on demand for a price. I think that's going to be more of what we call hybrid is that type of sale. That makes sense. I, I'm really interested in it. Make um, and appreciate the idea of the virtual attendees 
kind of as an added benefit. Um, it kind of gives that return on investment for association groups and kind of involving your teams and events as well. So that's very cool. Yeah. Um, tilting the conversation a little bit, still pricing obviously, but how common is the question, what do we do about exhibitors? How do we price this? How do we find those benefits for them? Yeah, I think um, this is more of a mindset shift and it's heavy lifting for the association. And of course, at this point, most have done the work. I mean, we probably everyone has had a virtual event at this point. But for me, I don't think that sponsor rates need to really go down. I think it depends, of course, on the value tip for tap that they were getting for in-person versus virtual. But to me, I'm seeing just about the same amount of value. And that's why I say it's more of a mindset. Mm -hmm. I think most exhibitors can look at the value as being in the trade show hall and shaking hands and seeing people. But the reality is, if you think about it from an attendee perspective, when we attend events, we kind of dodge the trade show, if we're being honest. You smile, you're nice, but unless you're really shopping, you don't, you're there to be polite, that's it. Mm -hmm. I think that because of that, sponsors can have a false sense of what success is. So to me, one of the first questions is, how do we define success in you sponsoring this event? Is it you being in front of so many people because you're still in front of people by being in a virtual environment? Is it by you collecting so many contacts because you can still collect contacts in a virtual environment? Um, I like to get more granular than that. Is it conversions, people who opt into something and are interested because you can have 7,000 people at an event, but realistically maybe 100 of those 7,000 are even interested in buying in the next year. So I don't care about the number 7,000. I care about the number 100 as a paying sponsor. So knowing what they really care about, um, I think brand matters, you know, being there, being in the sandbox matters. I think ultimately what really matters is leads and conversion of leads. That's it. So to me, how many leads can you get them? Um, how easy are you making it? Digital makes it easier. You're removing that face-to-face, -face, that awkwardness of, I don't I want to look at your solution, but I don't know if I want to come over because then you're going to talk to me for 30 minutes. And mm -hmm. I really just have five minutes. I want to grab your card and say, or, or give you mine and say, email me next week and let's set up a call, but don't give me the demo right now. I don't want all that. Mm -hmm. And again, that's being transparent. Most people laugh when I talk like this, but it's the truth and we know it. We just don't say it. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think that if we're still giving our sponsors that value, why would I lower the price of the package? And if anything, there's more opportunities. Yeah, you're not rubbing elbows, but there's better digital analytics. You get to see how many people really click through to something. And I bet you'll have more opt-ins or sign-ups for maybe a webinar or a survey. I've seen sponsors say, hey, come fill out this survey and then get an industry report on trends for this area. But by doing that, you're getting their name and email and phone. I think there's so many more ways and better ways in a digital environment that we can do sponsorship. So to me, I, I have actually encouraged that sponsorship stays the same or goes up. And I think that's one thing as we move back to in-person, we're going to need to do some digital transformation and continue this into the in-person events. Um, to me, it just makes sense. So I, I think that is something we're gonna see grow over the next few years and it's going to provide more value and therefore that's more revenue for the organization. So in the, the whole continuum of products that associations offer, mm -hmm. what are you seeing the most interest in hiring a consultant like you to really dig down into the pricing strategy? And what I'm saying is between, you know, selling memberships mm -hmm. to, you know, selling conference conferences, and then of course the sponsorship mm -hmm. aspect that you just talked about, and then there's online products. Where are you seeing the 
the most interest? Yeah, I think most people are girding up. Um, the, the initial when COVID first happened, a lot of it was sponsorship because it was how they already signed contracts for the year. So it's how do we deliver? How do we pivot? Now that that's settled, I think where most organizations are leaning in is education and then membership. Education is more the short game, even though it's a long-term strategy, but it's a, it, it, it's a bit easier to get going. Membership is more of a long game. Um, so what I mean by that is education, it's that most people are saying, wait, we maybe, in fact, this is what I mostly see. They've been offering CEs or whatever they, you know, they offer just for butts in the seat. So you attend a webinar or a one hour training, you get a certificate, you get an hour towards whatever your designation is. That's not cutting it because they're saying, okay, we need to increase the value. Now there's more free things. How do we compete? So where I see organizations moving with education is some more competency based. So how do we really assess the learning objectives and what is the change behavior and what is the ROI for the organization? So not just that I'm coming back from a conference and now whatever it is, I know how to do, I know something, it's I can do something different that will generate revenue for the organization. And then the membership end is a bit more long game because you can do it quickly enough, like you can transform membership within three to 12 months, depending on how much you're doing and what it takes and what technology you have. But that's more of a long game because you don't reinvent membership every three months. Like every year you should look at membership, but in general, you're making drastic changes every three to five years, not every year. So that's a bit more of a long game. And that game for me is really about retention of your current audience and then funneling them into education, events, you know, other offerings. So that's why I say that's more of a long game strategy. The education is more of the short range. What can we do right now train our people in right now, get them solutions that they don't have available so that it's an easy no-brainer for their boss to say, yeah, we have this need in our organization. If you go do this training, that might help. So go do it. To me, those are the two main. I'm still seeing sponsorship, but I think that's settling somewhat. Let's get into the weeds here and um, let's talk about your methodology. When you, you are engaged, what are, the, what are the things that you do with the stakeholders at the association? Yeah, um, so it depends if it's a new product or if it's revising a current one, but it, in general, so it can it modifies a little bit. But in general, I always like to start with data. So if it's something that, you know, that already exists, I want to see purchase history. Um, what are they accessing? How often? What length? What specific components? So if it's a membership or if it's education, what does that look like? Um, if it's something that's brand new, then it's probably more any initial market research they did to prove the concept. Um, they've usually already worked with somebody or internally done some kind of, okay, this is a need. Here's the feedback we got. So I like to start with that and see what is the story. The reason I like to start with that is most associations tell themselves a story and not in a bad way, but it may not always be fully accurate. It's usually like 80% accurate. And then looking at the data, I'm like, well, you know, they might think like membership I'll use, for example, well, these two things are what our people love. But then I look at it and I'm like, there was one thing I looked at recently. And I said, you've had 30 people out of your 3000 members access the monthly digital keynotes that you're loading in. No one cares about that. Either you're under communicating it, they don't know about it or they don't care. So that's a conversation to then, you know, dive deeper into. So when they're saying, yeah, we need to lead with, you know, monthly tr digital training. I'm like, no, no, they don't care. That's 1% of your people. So I like to look at the data and make sure that what people are accessing and what they value is correct. 
And that doesn't mean that's everything. I, I always like to share the Ford quote, if I would have asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. So just because they're not accessing something doesn't mean you don't lean in there or that there is a new opportunity, but I like to see historically. Then I move into market research. So then it's you know figuring out who are the segments that we're talking to. I like to ask questions around value. What do you value? What's lacking? Uh, what do you not care about that's in there? I like to ask questions about price. How do you perceive the price? If we were to add some things in, these specific things, what might that do? So I kind of you know go through that process. And then from there, we take a step back and say, okay, here's what we're thinking. In general, we're seeing this is the direction to move in. This is what to add. This is the value in the innovation conversation and then what price we might capture. Let's kind of assess, is this where we want to go? And then from there, that's where we do the market testing. So if we have a few ideas or if we just have one strong idea, then I make some placebos up and we kind of test, okay, you can get with this or that, what would you pick? And start garnering up what, you know, what, what number of people might we retain? How many might upgrade? How many might we lose? What does that all do? And then from there, that gives us a good knowledge throughout of marketing communications, the value propositions and the pricing and the packaging. And that creates an output where, you know, we, we typically do a 30 to 40 page report of here's everything. Um, and, and this way they can execute. And then from there, they need to do the work. So when we finish, it doesn't mean the new membership is launched or the new uh, assessment-based certificate is launched. It means now you know what it needs to be, go make it. So that might take another quarter or even a year or depending on their bandwidth, and then they implement it. But it allows them to know what the right path forward is. So that's kind of how we, uh, how we work our, our method. So um, at WebCourseWorks, you know, we're, our, our customers care deeply about online educational products. Mm -hmm. um, can you address specifically how, what, you know, what do you see moving forward when it comes to um, pricing online educational products? Yeah, I think um, a few things. The first is when it comes to the purpose of online education, I do think it's going to need to be very strong on what the outcome is. So again, no longer just saying it's about knowledge alone. And I think most organizations are moving that way, but it matters even more right now. So what is the change? What, like, what is the real ROI? So um, are you, are you, are you speaking about what is the return on investment for the learner or for the member buying? Uh, well, really both the learner, but also the organization. So if, it, if the learner is purchasing just for themselves, then they care about their career development. So what, what is this going to do for me? If the organization is buying, the learner should still care what is this going to do for me, but then also what is this going to do for the organization? What is the point? So one exercise, you know, one thing I, I used to do is if I wanted to go to a conference, for example, I would look at the sessions in advance when they were announced. And then when I would pitch it to my boss to pay for it, I would say, here are three sessions I know I'm going to and how it seems like I'll be able to do something with that. Here's, here's what I'm going to be able to do. Now, did the sessions always deliver? No. Were there other sessions I went to? Yes. But it gave an idea. And then when I came back, it was, okay, here's two or three things I think I could work on in the next quarter based on what I learned at that conference. So I think it's the same thing for online education. There has to be an outcome. Uh, I think it should be for the organization and the individual, unless it's an individual paying themselves. So, yeah, let's talk about that. Because so you're pricing, you're pricing to sell to an organization. Can you give me a use case there? 
Yeah, I think, well, actually, I think that uh, the one I spoke on earlier fits really well here. So the um, the adjacent department, what it was, was basically the department uh, where the membership was, um, the, the core uh, audience. They were making business decisions based on the trainings from the association. But then there, this other department's impacted by that it was sales and would say, we can't sell based on what you're saying. That's not going to work. So there was a bottleneck where the one department is going and getting training and able to make recommendations to improve the organization according to its goals. And there was an ROI, but then it was getting bottlenecked with this other department. So by creating the training for this other department and saying, okay, we can get sales in a cohesive manner where they understand, and that'll help drive the organization forward. That became a very clear um, ROI for the organization to say, okay, we're gonna make sales go through this. Now in that case, the sales department didn't necessarily see the full ROI because they were voluntold that they had to do this training. It was not intrinsically motivated. Um, it was extrinsically motivated. They were told what they were doing, but it, it was an ROI for the organization. So it was mandated, they had to do it. And then that would allow the organization to see the results that they wanted. Um, so that change management piece, if you will, it, it was needed across the board. But that would be the case even for one individual department. If, they, if there's an individual department, um, I can think of a nursing association right now that I'm working with. With the pandemic, most nurses are being asked to move to different departments so that they can serve COVID patients and where there are gaps or travel, right? So they might be working in areas they don't normally work in. They normally do pediatrics and, you know, help with, you know, kids who broke their arms, right? Like an ortho pediatric type setting. Now they're in an ER where people are coming in with COVID, where people are coming in with behavioral health issues, uh, varying things that they don't deal with every day. So a quick training on here are some of the things you're going to see in this environment for the next month, that would really help give an ROI to the nurse being there so that they can be more effective. So to me, that's how you make the case. But it's the association's responsibility to know that's the need, that that's what they're solving and communicate that so that the organization can make the decision to purchase. What kind of philosophy do you kind of live by or provide discuss discussions with for associations around the discounting, coupons, loyalty rewards, those types of items? Yeah, so I hate discounting. Um, <laughs> I don't, and, and that might sound like, oh, well, go figure, what would you say? But I do have other alternatives that I recommend. And so when I say I hate discounting, what I mean is um, uh, I, I did a video on this actually because people really, like they they didn't get it. And I'm like, okay, I need to show you. So I actually did a video on Excel uh, and it's like on the blog. I'm like, here, let me take 10 minutes and show you. But the high level would be, let's say you have a product and we're going to use generic profit margins. So let's say that the product is $100 to sell. Um, I'm literally going to pull up my calculator. And let's say that you have a 40% profit margin. So you're making $40, right? Now, when you think of discounting, take a second and think, what discount would you offer? What's the minimum? Most people are going to say it needs to at least be 5 to 10%. No one's giving a 3% discount, right? What's the high end? or normal end, it might be 20, 30, even up to 50% off, right? Well, clearly you can only offer up to 40% off and even at 40% off, you have no profit now. At 50% off, you're losing profit. So let's go low, let's say you give 10% off. So now you're taking $10 off of this product on a $40 you know, profit margin. So to your members, it seems like, oh, 10% off 100, that's, that's a discount, it's weak. 
but it's a discount. But now suddenly your profit margin went down by 25%, not 10%. I don't think most people think through that. They think, oh, I'm giving 10% off. So my profit, my bottom line is 10% lower. No, you just cut it by 25%. That's a huge drop. Now let's discuss how many more do you need to sell because it's easier to maintain your clients, not to get new ones. So now you have to sell how many more, you know, just to make it make sense, right? And are you going to sell more? If you're not, then it's not worth offering the discount. So I say all that to say, what do I recommend? Typically what I recommend is figuring out what is some additional value that you can provide that has a really low profit margin that doesn't really take any effort on your team's behalf. So there's not really direct and indirect costs that are high um, and offer that instead. So here's what I mean. Instead of saying, if you register for our virtual event or this online course, this live online course, by one month out, you get 25% off. Take that away and instead say, if you register by one month before, you will get 30 days of replay included. And if you register within the month, you don't get replay. It's only live. Now that's still a value trigger that I'm going to say that's worth it because what if I can't make it? What if something comes up or what if I just want to rewatch it or share it with a team member? I mean, secretly, right? We're not supposed to share our online course login, but people do it. But what if I want to share it with a team member? Now I know I can because we have 30 days to rewatch it. That becomes something that is still of a monetary value but they're not getting for free, like mm -hmm. it, it, within the 30 days. I would rather that than a than a dollar discount. So I would rather think of something that, again, the keeping it there probably doesn't cost anything extra. Um, them accessing it for 30 days probably doesn't cost anything extra. The only thing you would probably need to do is pull the list 30 days before of who signed up. And then after the live event is over, the staff member has to wipe everybody out except for those people. So that might take an hour's worth of work that might have a $50 cost at most for a staff member. So that to me, that is way better than giving 10% off. And then you're losing, you know, 25% profit margin on everybody who signs up by 30 days out. So that's, that's, that's what I recommend very strongly for discounting. Appreciate hearing that. Um, yeah. How does bundling fit into that discount conversation? Yeah. So, so bundling to me is good. I think you can offer volume-based discounts. I think you can do bundling, you can do add-ons and you can do versions. Those are all a little bit different. So bundling would be saying, okay, you're going to get two or three things. And for this discounted rate, if they're each normally a hundred bucks, but you're getting three things, it's now a 250 or $270 bundle. Um, okay. That like that can work. Um, you can also do add-ons. So that's almost like an upsell. You can say, hey, you're getting this course if you also want to purchase the workbook or if you want to purchase a 30-day replay, you can pay an extra $20 right now to get it. And then you can do different versions where maybe you have the same thing with slight modifications. So that would be um, similar enough to the add-on, but instead of it being you buy a core offer and then there are optional add-ons, that would almost be doing tiers where you might say you get the live you know, watch for 100 the live plus the 30 day for 130 and the live plus the 30 day plus the workbook for 150 or some kind of follow up you know reference for 150 so that would be versioning i think all three of those work i think you have to know where you have to take a step back is what do your people value do they value the workbook so again looking at data how many of them access it how many of them log in within the 30 days after an event if you already offer that if no one's logging in that's not the value driver to use for discounting or for bundling or add-ons or versions that they don't care what do they care about 
Um, and then how can you take that? Maybe they would value a follow-up Q&A lunch, uh, lunch and learn one week or one month later. I've seen that where, hey, if you sign up you know, by the state or if you pay an extra you know, $30, you get to attend and it's limited to maybe 10 people or 30 people. And we get together for an hour with the presenter and ask your questions or submit them by a week before. And then they're gonna go through and just answer them during a live while we all eat lunch. Those are so, but, but you have to know what they value. You have to have the market research conversations and know what they value or you're gonna pull the wrong triggers and it doesn't matter. So Dr. Mike, we're, we're running out of time. We should probably do this again. <laughs> uh, my question to you though is uh, if, if there are people out there that want to dip their toe into your services. Do you have any kind of pricing strategies on, of, of your own to uh, recommend? Yeah, um, I, mean, I think I've shared quite a bit. I think the big thing would be, um, I give a lot, I'll, let me put it this way. I put a lot of tips and tricks on the blog. So that's a good place to go look and kind of sort and figure it out. But in general, I think the biggest trick that I usually give people is price anchoring, which means take something that is similar enough that you've already sold and proven the concept on, figure out what percent of your new or upgraded offer is the value in comparison to the other thing that you're comparing it to that anchor, and then relate the price based on that. So if you're upgrading it by 20%, up the price by 20%. If it's something new and it's half of the access, then maybe half the price. That's not always guaranteed. And you might leave money on the table. You might be able to charge more but that's a good indicator um, and a good cheat sheet if you're just going to DIY it to kind of figure out a quick tip and, and a method so that you can price on your own without having to go through a, a, a two-month project. So what about the people that want to hire you? Do you have, um, you know, like in, introductory rates or do you have a way for um, people to get comfortable with you? Um, Tell me a little bit about your pricing scheme for consulting. Yeah, so so for consulting, we do. We offer three ways that you can work with us. The first, And it's all on the website, uh, pricingforassociations.com if you go to the consulting page. Um, but the first way is we offer a one-hour call. That's best if you just want us to answer a few questions or maybe look at a piece of collateral. I've had people say, hey, here's our sponsor prospectus. Can you look at it and tell us, is it making sense? Is there, are there any psychological tips we can use? Um, so, so there is the one hour call. We uh, also offer the second option is a one day intensive. That's typically, uh, you have more than a few questions, but it's not a full on project. So maybe we're looking at comparing your virtual event to your in-person and you're deciding about pricing. That's especially popular for those who gave it away for free last year, the virtual. And they're saying, now we need to charge, what do we do? But we don't wanna take months and do market research. We just need to figure it out. Uh, the one day intensive is a great option. And then the third way that we work with people is actual projects. And that's the, the majority, like, 80 to 90% of our clients are projects. Um, and that's where we take six to eight weeks, um, sometimes more, it, it depends, but typically 95% of the time, it's a six to eight week project. And we walk you through our entire framework um, for pricing, whether it's a new offer or a revision, and that's for one offer. So in six to eight weeks, we're not gonna do your membership, your certification, your virtual event, your sponsorship, your, you know, mm. et cetera. We're going to pick one thing. We can work on more than one at a time, but each project is for one offer or one product. 
And so I have clients right now where we're doing two products right now. And then they have four more for later this year that we're going to price. So we kind of split it up, figure out the time frame. When do you need it by? But those are the three ways outside of speaking uh, or doing private. I've also done private internal training, but typically our people want consulting if they're an association. So those are the three ways they can work with us. And that website again is? Yeah, it's pricingforassociations.com. Great. What a What an awesome timely topic. Don't you think, Matt? Yes, uh, absolutely. There's five more questions I could go through that I'm <laughs> asked very commonly, and we'll just save that for next time. Or they can go to pricingforassociations.com and reach out to you and have a conversation directly. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. He was Dr. Mike Tatanetti um, with pricingforassociations.com. Really appreciated having him. I hope everybody has a good day. Bye.